Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Good afternoon and welcome to Fishhawk Live and the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. We usually discuss target species like trout and salmon and how to catch them, but today we're going to do something a little different. We're talking sea lampreys with Ross Shaw from the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Ross, first off, can you tell us a little bit about the sea lamprey? I read on the Great Lakes Fishery Commission uh, website that the species has been around for more than 340 million years and has survived more than four major extinction events. That's pretty astounding. What makes this creature so adaptable? Uh, yeah, so that that's uh, really a great point you make. So these guys are, uh, their lineage dates back 340 million years. So even though uh, sea lampreys are fish, they aren't exactly what you would think of when you think of a stereotypical fish. So um, it looks almost kind of like a water snake combined with almost an eel. Um, but unlike most fish, these guys don't have any paired fins. They don't have bony jaws. In fact, they're all cartilaginous. Um, and so that um, <clears throat> primary, that evolutionarily early uh, adaptations in their body um, is, help what, is what makes them uh, such an adaptable species. So these guys were native to the Atlantic Ocean uh, and then invaded through the man-made shipping canals in the uh, early 1800s. And then they were only in Lake Ontario uh, for a while because they couldn't get past Niagara Falls. Uh, but once the Welland Canal was widened and deepened in the early 1900s, uh, that gave them an easy path uh, right around the falls and essentially was open season on uh, many of the Great Lakes uh, commercial, uh, recreational, and tribal uh, important fisheries. So um, lake trout, whitefish, um, and pretty much anything that the sea lampreys could get their mouths on. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Once they were able to kind of clear those falls, how fast did that spread occur? How did that happen? Uh, yeah, so they uh, were first, so I, obviously they uh, geographically, so they were first in Lake Erie, but the problem wasn't really noticed because the fishery wasn't as prominent. And I, I believe that was primarily due uh, to the industry that uh, was along the waters there. So there wasn't a whole lot of great habitat for uh, the sea lampreys to establish there. And it wasn't until they actually reached uh, Lake Huron and uh, Lake Michigan uh, where they really started to do the, do some damage and uh, that people started um, sounding the alarm per se on, on the sea lamprey invasion. And it was by 1938 that sea lampreys had actually reached Lake Superior and the problem had um, come to almost nearly a peak. And um, at that point, uh, the commercial and recreational and tribal fishers, uh, as well as coastal communities that depended on these fishing operations, uh, really started sounding the alarm and, and talking to uh, elected representatives uh, to um, get both the United States and Canada to come together to deal with the sea lamprey problem. Uh, because sea lampreys obviously did not uh, obey these these boundaries, these uh, predetermined boundaries. So the, uh, the there's six, six or seven Great Lakes uh, U.S. states, as well as um, two Canadian provinces that surround the uh, Great Lakes Basin and many different tribal nations. Um, so there are many different jurisdictions uh, around the Great Lakes. And because the sea lamprey problem was uh, so pervasive, and caused such a disruption to day-to-day -day life, um, the, both the governments of the United States and Canada realized that they, uh, they would have to come together. They weren't going to be able to uh, 
handled this piecemeal like they previously uh, previously did, having uh, each jurisdiction handle things on their own and not communicating with other jurisdictions. They realized that uh, they, they really needed to come together and uh, form an entity to work across the borders. Uh, and that's when the Great Lakes Fishery Commission was established, was in uh, 1955, when both the U.S. and Canada uh, finally came together uh, to tackle the sea lamprey problem. It's, it's been almost 70 years since that happened, Ross. I think people today, you know, they, they know that they're there and they know that they affect things. But you try to kind of paint the picture of what it was like at that time, in the 40s and 50s, um, how much of an effect it is. Put some numbers to that. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the uh, sea lamprey's favorite prey species, uh, the lake trout, to uh, put some numbers to this. Uh, annual commercial lake trout catches in Lake Huron in Michigan, uh, they were about around 5 million kilograms in, in the 1940s, and that dropped to nearly zero in the late 1950s. And uh, the lake trout, in fact, were almost extirpated or uh, eliminated from uh, four out of the five Great Lakes. Uh, so every lake except Lake Superior. And the only reason they were still in Lake Superior is because that's the last lake that they invaded, but also the first lake where sea lamprey control was started. So, I, I mean, lake trout, lake whitefish, um, all these enormously important uh, commercial and recreational fisheries were absolutely decimated. Uh, and of course, the associated coastal communities that depended on the tourism uh, that, you know, needed, um, got money from marinas, um, other things like that, they were, of course, also decimated as well. All right. You talked about the different lakes that, that they spread to, obviously, uh, into all of the lakes. Is there something about some of the lakes that make it kind of more susceptible to sea lampreys, uh, maybe uh, Lake Superior with deeper, colder temperatures, is it less susceptible? How, how does that work? Uh, so I wouldn't say as far as limnologically that there's any um, any ability. I guess, I, like I touched on earlier, if, um, you know, like it, when they first invaded Lake Lake Erie, for example, had significant pollution. Uh, and so uh, because the uh, water and stream quality was degraded, they didn't have good spawning habitat. So um, sea lampreys, when they go to spawn, they look for a very specific substrate, a very uh, a rocky substrate. And then that's what they use to actually build their nests. Um, so you you could go and, and say that, yeah, if they don't have that um, specific substrate, they don't have um, good stream quality, that that would affect it. Uh, you know, you see with, um, you know, the environmental movement that started, um, you know, uh, with the Great Lakes Water or the Water Quality Act uh, and improving stream health. Okay, that that's great that, you know, the stream health is improving, but you also see because that stream health is improving uh, and making good habitat for sea lampreys, sea lampreys could also invade there. So um, by improving stream habitat, you also are, on the other hand, improving uh, sea lamprey spawning habitat too. So um, you could look at it in that sense of that, um, you know, by improving uh, stream habitat, you know, sea lampreys can also proliferate in that uh, newly improved habitat too. Well, that's a great point you bring up, and that's something that I wanted to ask you about next. So what is the life cycle of a sea lamprey? How, how does that work? Uh, how long do they live, and, and what are the different stages? Yeah, so uh, it's hard to put an exact number on, the, uh, on how long a sea lamprey will live, and that's primarily because uh, they uh, well, so let, let's go to the life cycle first. So they hatch from their eggs and then they go into what we call uh, larvae or amicetes. So that's when these guys are, are really small, about uh, about the size of your, yeah, there you go. Uh, very small, about the size of your pinky, maybe even smaller. And so at that point, what they're going to do is swim downstream and bury into the stream bed and they're actually going to filter feed. So at this point, 
are essentially harmless. So they're just buried in the stream bed, filter feeding on um, phytoplankton, zooplankton, and other organic material uh, in the environment. And they're going to be in that stage uh, from anywhere from three to five, and sometimes even up to as much as 10 years. So that's kind of at that stage, that really kind of throws a wrench into the uh, calculation of, you know, how long do sea lampreys live? That That is the stage that primarily affects uh, its lifespan the most. Uh, but after they uh, spend that time in that larval stage, what they'll do is actually uh, metamorphose. So that's when they're going to develop uh, eyes and that sucker mouth that everyone is so familiar with. And that's when they'll swim downstream and begin their parasitic feeding phase. So that's when they're going to go and do their damage. They're going to go out into the lakes and start feeding on fish. Uh, so each sea lamprey in that 12 to 18 months of their feeding phase is going to kill about 40 pounds of Great Lakes fish. And after they're done feeding on fish, uh, they turn into what we call the spawning adult. And their uh, digestive tract will actually shut down uh, and they'll be focused on uh, spawning and spawning only. So what they're going to do is find a stream that has a good spawning habitat. And actually how they uh, find that is super interesting. So uh, the larvae, after they hatch and are burying in the stream bed, they actually excrete what's called uh, a pheromone or it's this natural scent. Uh, that they excrete and it actually flows down the river out into the lakes. And that's how sea lampreys in part determine which streams they want to go back up to to spawn. By smelling those uh, freshly hatched larvae, they can determine that, oh, there, there's some good spawning habitat up there. So once they find a good stream to go up, uh, they'll swim upstream. And then, uh, as I mentioned, they make these uh, rocky horseshoe-shaped nests. And so uh, once they have made that nest, they'll actually intertwine. They'll lat one will latch on top of each other, and then the bottom one will latch onto a rock. They'll intertwine, uh, wriggle, and then they will release their sperm and eggs uh, downstream onto that um, rocky horseshoe-shaped nest. And so that's when uh, the eggs will hatch. Uh, and then the sea lampreys will actually uh, die after they spawn. So they kind of are similar to a, a salmon in that way. And so that's part of the reason that, you know, when once they're done feeding, um, they are focused on spawning and spawning only. And that's because that's their essentially goal, goal in life is once they're done feeding, they, they have one thing and one thing only, it's going to be spawning and dying. Um, so all said and done, we estimate it's about two years on top of however long they, spell, they spend in that uh, larval or amicete phase. Um, so that can be as little as five years uh, to as many as 12 years. Very interesting. Uh, one of the other things we were talking about is that they're, they're native to the, the Atlantic Ocean, and the fish in the Atlantic Ocean have kind of built almost a, a defense to uh, sea lamprey attacks that Great Lakes fish don't have. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how, how they really affect fish when they feed on them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what the sea lamprey will do is if you see its mouth, it has uh, over 150 razor sharp teeth and a sucker mouth. Uh, so they use that sucker mouth to actually latch onto the side of the fish and it has a uh, suction cup around the outside of his mouth. So it latches on, it uses that uh, those over 150 razor sharp teeth to dig into the side of the fish's flesh. And then in the center of the mouth here, you can see what's called the rasping tongue. And so that's what really does the damage. So once they're attached onto that fish, they use that rasping tongue to uh, gnaw and bore a hole through that fish's uh, scales and into its flesh. And once it's created that hole uh, and the blood starts flowing, it's actually going to excrete an anticoagulant to prevent the blood uh, for essentially from stopping. And so that fish will sit there, and, or the sea lamprey rather, will sit on that fish and feed on it um, for essentially as long as it wants. Uh, so 
most of the time, a sea lamprey will kill that fish that it's on. Uh, but as you can see from this photo here, if that fish does survive the sea lamprey attack, uh, the sea lamprey will leave a really nasty wound. And so that wound will either uh, will oftentimes become infected and cause the fish to die, or it'll uh, make the fish more susceptible to predation. So most of the time, if a fish is attacked or attacked by a sea lamprey, it's more, more often than not going to succumb to uh, its wounds and die. So we estimate about six out of every seven fish that are attacked by sea lamprey uh, do eventually die. So these guys are, are very lethal. Uh, and you had mentioned, you know, uh, the uh, Atlantic population. And so what part of the reason they're so, uh, so problematic here in the Great Lakes is because out in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, these guys have co-evolved with the much larger fish. So you think about they're feeding on fish uh, on the scale, the size of like um, a tuna or say like a shark. So these are significantly larger fish and, and those smaller wounds that they're leaving on the fish, they aren't actually going to be killing that fish. It's more of uh, kind of like a leech where it'll drink your blood and it'll la it'll uh, come unlatched. It'll, it'll, it gets what it's need, what it needs. It drinks your blood, but then uh, you're left essentially harmless. You know, you, you have the wound, but the wound heals over. But when it's in the Great Lakes, you think about a, the fish that it's feeding on. So you think about like a, a lake trout or a, a whitefish. Those fish are magnitudes of times smaller uh, than a tuna and have not co-evolved with uh, this sea lamprey that's from the Atlantic Ocean. So that wound that it normally wouldn't be a problem on an ocean-going fish, like a tuna, uh, is going to be much more problematic and cause much higher mortality on those uh, on the native fish here in the Great Lakes uh, compared to uh, those in the Atlantic Ocean. We're visiting with Ross Shaw today from the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. We're talking sea lampreys. And if you have any questions for Ross, whether you're on YouTube or on Facebook, go ahead and put those in the comments and we'll get them to uh, Ross. Ross, now you've been talking about salmon. You've been talking about lake trout, whitefish. Uh, what other, and I showed a picture of brown trout. Uh, what other species, I mean, are, is, is every fish in the Great Lakes susceptible to sea lamprey attacks? Yeah, and, and so that, that's part of the reason sea lampreys are so destructive is they uh, really are, are willing to eat just about anything that they can get their sucker mouths on. Uh, so uh, scientists have actually proven that sea lampreys will have a preference uh, for lake trout, but in the absence of those preferred prey species, uh, they, they will attach to anything. So um, they have attached and killed uh, fish as large as sturgeon to uh, things as small as perch, uh, bass, uh, walleye. So they, they really don't have a preference. They just want something that has blood. And um, if they can get their mouths on them, it's, uh, they're happy with it. So, All right. We're starting to get a question here. Here's one from uh, Captain Jamie Shane, uh, Sporty Two Charters out of Erie, Ontario. Jamie wants to know how big can they get? Yeah, so great question. So on average, uh, sea lamprey will be about uh, a foot, a foot and a half long. Uh, but in the Atlantic Ocean, where they're feeding on much larger fish, they'll actually get uh, about two feet big. So they do get significantly bigger in, in the Atlantic Ocean. But yeah, here in the Great Lakes, about a foot, foot and a half long. Um, and then, um, yeah, yeah. All right. My son wants to know, uh, can they attack humans if we're swimming <laughs> in the Great Lakes? That that is probably our most asked question, and I would and I am happy to report that you can swim without fear. So sea lampreys uh, will only attack 
warm-blooded creatures. So, or sorry, rather, they will only attack cold-blooded creatures. So fish, as we know, are, are cold-blooded creatures. And so sea lampreys um, will, can detect, you know, what type of blood a, um, a particular organism has, and they will only attach uh, to cold-blooded creatures. Um, so if there, you know, there have been uh, stories, you know, back during the peak invasions of the early 1900s, uh, you know, supposedly some, um, there was a swimmer, a woman who swam across Lake Ontario and the, um, the news headline was a woman emerges from Lake Ontario covered in lampreys. And while that probably did happen, um, the, uh, I, I'd say more more likely cause of them attaching to that particular person uh, was that uh, they were more hitching along for the ride than actually drinking that person's blood just because, uh, as I said, uh, they they are not interested in warm blood. Here's another question, and this is a good one. We've been talking about Great Lakes here so far today, but uh, Joe Chase wants to know how they're being dealt with in the Finger Lakes. I'm assuming yeah. he's talking about the Finger Lakes in New York. Great question. Yeah, yeah. So we actually have a um, a whole entire division devoted to uh, treating sea lampreys over in the Finger Lakes. So that is our, our folks at the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service out in Vermont. So uh, we have a specific, a dedicated uh, source of funding uh, specifically to fighting uh, sea lampreys in the Finger Lakes. So we do have uh, our partners at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, out there treating sea lampreys uh, almost every year. All right, Ross, uh, that actually leads us to my next question, and that is, uh, what are we doing about them? How, how do we uh, control sea lampreys? Yeah, great question. So uh, we use pri primarily two control methods, and so that first one is what we call lampricides. So what this is, it's a selective toxicant that we apply to streams where we know that there are high concentrations of those larval lampreys. So we have our partner agencies at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here in the States, as well as Department of Fisheries and Oceans over in Canada. Those are gonna be our partner agencies who are actually going out and conducting the field work. So what they'll do is they'll uh, send out agents with uh, electro uh, fishing backpacks. And what that is, it kind of look like Ghostbusters. And what that is, is they have uh, these little electric paddles that they go out into streams. And then what they'll do is they'll actually tickle the sea lamprey out of the stream bed and then depending on how many uh, larval lampreys they find, they can use that data to uh, extrapolate and determine uh, the relative abundance of, a, of uh, larval lampreys in that stream. And then once we determine, okay, um, you know, which, which specific stream has the highest concentrations of lampreys, uh, what we'll do is we'll decide, okay, we, we, this will be a good candidate for a lampricide treatment. And so once we're ready to apply this lampricide, what we do is we uh, find the stream and then we'll actually go, go up essentially as far, uh, as far up the stream as the sea lampreys can get. So most oftentimes this is the, uh, the first barrier up the stream. So whether it's a, um, a purpose-built dam to actually block sea lampreys or, you know, something like a hydroelectric dam. Uh, but anyways, we'll go up to where we know they will not be able to get above, and then we'll just treat uh, the stream down from there. So we have these lampricides. So what we'll do is we'll apply it at a very small concentration. Um, you're looking on the order of uh, parts three to five to seven uh, parts per million, like very, very small amounts. And what that is, it's uh, applied uh, as a liquid via a perforated tube across the stream. 
Um, we'll also go into uh, little streams and creeks and tributaries uh, and also apply different forms of this lampricide, uh, sometimes in the form of uh, just blocks and just put those in these slow running streams to let them uh, slowly dissipate because we want to make sure we get every possible uh, way into that river, in and out of that river to make sure there are no uh, larval lampreys that are going to be escaping this, uh, this lampricide treatment. Um, so with uh, this lampricide, it, it is by far our uh, most effective and efficient control method. Uh, but the uh, downside to this is that it is extremely expensive. So as I mentioned, we do have to be um, very specific and uh, uh, very strategic about wh where we're going to uh, apply the lampricides. And then the other control method that we use uh, in concert with lampricides is barriers. Um, so as I mentioned, these can be uh, barriers that are uh, purposely built uh, to block sea lampreys, or they could be any uh, barriers that have a different function, but also by chance do happen to block sea lampreys. Um, and so, as I mentioned, uh, the sea lampreys cannot get above the barriers, so the barriers actually uh, help us limit the amount of stream miles that we actually have to apply that lampricide in. And you also meant, you also showed that uh, picture of a trap. So uh, traps are a method we use to remove sea lampreys from streams. However, because the traps, um, they are not as efficient, uh, they aren't so efficient that we classify them as a control method. Um, so primarily what we use traps for is uh, for assessment purposes. So what we'll do is uh, we'll put these traps oftentimes at the base of uh, dams and other barriers. And then based on uh, how many lampreys we get when they come upstream to spawn, uh, we can use that to help us determine uh, the size of the sea lamprey populations. So those, uh, those lampricides and barriers are our, our two primary control methods, uh, but uh, we as the Fishery Commission uh, are investing a substantial amount of money um, into research into uh, other control methods. Um, so for example, uh, one uh, interesting um, uh, possible control method that is being explored is what we call uh, pheromones. So I mentioned that pheromone that the larvae uh, excrete to tell uh, spawning sea lamprey that this is a suitable spawning habitat. Uh, we, some of our scientists have uh, actually uh, determined that sea lampreys uh, have a, what we call an alarm cue. So that is what we call a repellent pheromone. So that, uh, that pheromone that I talked about that the larvae excrete, uh, that's what we call an attractant pheromone, uh, otherwise, or known so the, the larvae will excrete it and then the lampreys come towards it. Whereas this uh, alarm cue uh, is what we call the repellent pheromone. So that is, as the name implies, repels the sea lampreys. So that's excreted by uh, dead or dying sea lampreys to tell them to, you know, uh, get out of here. You don't really want to be here. There's, there's a predator or uh, something else that uh, could put you in danger nearby. And so what some of this research is looking into is uh, seeing if there's ways where we can use those attractant and repellent pheromones uh, to improve that trapping efficiency. Because as I mentioned, uh, currently trapping uh, isn't uh, efficient enough to the point where it's making a substantial indent on the sea lamprey populations. Uh, so what the idea is with this pheromone is say we have a fork in a river and this is 
really good spawning habitat, and this side is uh, a trap. So we don't want them to go to the good spawning habitat, so we might apply that repellent pheromone uh, in that side of the creek and then put the attractant pheromone on the other side of the creek to help encourage them to get into the trap and increase that trapping efficiency. Uh, so it's super, super interesting stuff, um, and um, our researchers are doing great work, and it'll be uh, very interesting to see um, how sea leopard control uh, evolves in the coming decades. All right, the folks at the uh, home office are chiming in. They've got some questions. I like this one. Uh, this one I'm assuming is from uh, Trevor Sumption. He wants to know if anyone has eaten one. <laughs> <laughs> that is also a, a very frequent question. So so it's funny you mention that. So when they when they first invaded, that is uh, probably one of the first uh, first control methods they tried. There's a uh, very famous picture that uh, we is very well known in our office of uh, someone with uh, they, they have it on some sort of spear or fork above a uh, a pot where you can tell and they have a kind of disgusted look on their face because um, as as the story goes for any accounts of people that have tried to cook them it, it's just uh, quite frankly disgusting uh, so by uh, all accounts the meat is um, gray mushy. Um, just otherwise visually and um, taste-wise just unappetizing. Um, you know, we've had uh, people that have tried to smoke them. Um, people have tried to fry them and, and they still don't taste good. And I mean, in my opinion, if, if you're frying it and it still doesn't taste good, then then you know something's wrong. Uh, so yes, they, they have tried to eat them, but uh, unfortunately they uh, are, um, you know, not, not really seen as a... Uh, a good species to eat. And I think on top of that, even if they were uh, edible, uh, you wouldn't want to eat the ones in the Great Lakes specifically because they have high concentrations of heavy metals. So some of these uh, apex predators that they're feeding on, uh, like lake trout, uh, they are accumulating heavy metals, uh, you know, every, uh, by eat through the, the smaller fish, uh, the fish lower down in the food chain that they're eating. And when the sea lampreys are drinking uh, those uh, apex predators' blood and bodily fluids, they're getting just heavy metal, the, the, uh, almost all the heavy metals um, straight to their system. So they have high concentrations of heavy metals, so you wouldn't even really be able to eat them even if you wanted to. Um, I will say that not here in the Great Lakes, but over in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, specifically in Europe, uh, so on the uh, eastern coast of the Atlantic Ocean, um, lampreys are considered quite a delicacy. Uh, so they are oftentimes, so if you went in a restaurant and they had, uh, for example, they have fish that uh, are market price, uh, you know, sea lampreys are, are those kind of fish. I believe um, one of the delicacies, uh, I can't remember which country it was, but uh, one of the delicacies is sea lampreys in, um, in a stew of their own blood, uh, or something along those lines. I know we, there is also um, the Queen of England also uh, makes a ceremonial lamprey pie uh, every every so often. And so I think it was back in 2015 or um, the early 2010s where we actually did send some lampreys over over to England for the Queen and uh, her her lamprey pie. So uh, not not eaten here in the Great Lakes and don't want to be eaten here in the Great Lakes. But if you really wanted to, you could go over uh, to Europe to see if you can uh, find yourself some lampreys. All right. I'll think I'll pass on that one. Uh but uh, one of the other things that I hear, I talked to some some anglers in Lake Erie, and uh, one guy that I've talked to in particular, his theory about uh, the effectiveness of worms on Lake Erie 
is that uh, walleyes are, are used to eating sea lampreys and uh, a worm looks like, a nightcrawler looks like a sea lamprey. Are there fish that actually eat sea lampreys out there? So if fish did prey on sea lampreys, it would be in that larval stage where they are small and easily susceptible. Um, as far as we understand, there isn't a um, an established predator-prey relationship where fish are feeding on uh, lamprey larvae so much that they're actually affecting the population. Um, I mean, that's not to say that it couldn't happen. I, I would totally expect it to happen if, you know, a fish is uh, right by some larvae swimming out of their burrow. Um, but as, as far as we understand and as far as we've seen, um, there is no established predator-prey relationship. I mean, you will have, you know, after we do these lamprecide treatments and, you know, on, on some of these larger treatments, we're killing um, lampreys on the magnitudes of uh, millions, hundreds of thousands. Um, and so they'll be floating all around the river. And then you'll see, you know, fish come and eat those dead lamprey or, uh, for example, seagulls will, will come down and eat them. Um, so they will feed on them opportunistically, but as far as um, is as far as an established predator-prey relationship, uh, it's not something that we've seen. All right, Ross, uh, how about you talk about the numbers, uh, how many uh, sea lampreys that you're killing with these efforts. What do you think would happen if uh, we just scrapped the whole thing and decided not to do it? How fast would they be able to kind of take over the lakes again? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's a great question. So, um, one thing that if, if we did stop, say, uh, so far, like, for example, when we did in 2020, if you're not able to go out and treat, you're not going to see the effects immediately. Um, so the next year, because of that larval stage, as I mentioned, they're going to be uh, in that larval stage for anywhere from three to five years. So you're going to see it'll probably be about three or four years before you see a significant uptick in the population. Uh, but <clears throat> we have done that previously. Uh, I believe it was. Uh, the 90s, where uh, for whatever reason we were experimenting with uh, stopping sea lamprey control, and then within uh, I think it was uh, less than 10 years, we had seen a uh, substantial uptick in um, lake trout wounding. You know, you saw a decrease in the lake trout population. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, yeah, so you, you wouldn't see it immediately, but you know, four or five years down the line, you, you would definitely see uh, see the effects. You know, you'd see more scars on uh, your fish that you're catching. You see decreased um, fish population numbers. Uh, and so even though it's not uh, something you'd see an immediate effect of, it, it's uh, something that needs to be ongoing. So even though we've reduced the sea lamprey populations by over 90% uh, compared to the historic highs in the 1940s and 1950s, um, the sea lamprey are still out there. You know, as I mentioned, they are uh, so widespread throughout the Great Lakes um, that we we are sending control uh, teams out there every single year to uh, treat the most infected streams. Uh, and so, it, if if we stop that, I mean, the effects on uh, the Great Lakes fishery would be uh, enormous. As I mentioned, uh, when they first invaded, you know, they uh, almost wiped out lake trout from the whole entire Great Lakes. Uh, you know, the uh, Great Lakes fishery in general, was uh, nearly destroyed um, thanks to lampreys as well as other factors such as uh, overfishing, habitat destruction, and pollution. Um, but now, I mean, thanks to, in part, to sea lamprey control, uh, the Great Lakes fishery is valued at over $7 billion. So um, even though you wouldn't see that immediate effect on um, uh, on the uh, uh, Great Lakes fishery, you, you would see it in four or five years. And, and I think you'd uh, quickly find out that you need to continue lamprey control.
All right, here's one from a guy that's always on the show, always asking questions, Rick Mansell. He'd like to know if they prey on fish in the entire water column, how deep can they go? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So most of the time, they're going to be hanging out in, in the deeper parts of the water. So they prefer the, the colder, dark parts of uh, the Great Lakes. And um, what's interesting about that is they will actually change their um, color of their bodies depending on what type or what um, – stage of their life cycle they're in. So when they're in that um, that predatory phase, their, their juvenile and parasitic phase, when they're out, out in the lakes, down in the deeper parts of uh, the water, they're actually going to be uh, almost black, uh, dark gray. Uh, but then once it's time to spawn, they're hanging out in the uh, shallower parts of the water, the um, silty, muddy streams, they're actually going to turn into a, a brownish yellow. Um, but yeah, so, and, and that's another thing too. So we mentioned, uh, you know, sea lampreys not attacking humans. That's part of the reason too. And if you're diving down into, you know, 100, 200 feet of water, um, you know, you're going to see lampreys, but lampreys are not going to be swimming near the beach. You know, they're not going to be like sharks coming up to you. Um, so sea lampreys are, are, are only hanging out on, in the deeper parts of the water column. Are you saying there's sharks in the Great Lakes? <laughs> Not that we know of yet. You know, maybe, maybe there's a you know, Loch Ness Monster, a Megalodon sort of thing. Uh, but uh, not not that we've seen. All right. Didn't didn't <laughs> want to break any news today. Uh, all right. What should an angler do if they catch a fish with a sea lamprey uh, attached? Yeah, great question. So uh, I think the first thing is to ensure that is it is, in fact, a sea lamprey. So um, what uh, a lot of people uh, fail to realize is that in, in addition to the sea lamprey, there are actually four native species of sea lampreys in the Great Lakes. Um, and so they're pretty easy to tell, uh, tell apart because the sea lamprey is going to be significantly larger uh, than most of your native species. In fact, only two of the four native species are going to be parasitic or attaching to fish and drinking their blood. So once you confirm that it's a sea lamprey, so if you're looking at, again, as I mentioned earlier, somewhere on the size of, um, you know, a foot, foot and a half, um, that's going to be a sea lamprey. And so when, once you confirm that, uh, just cut its head off. Uh, do not throw it back. Um, cut its head off and throw it back in the water, you know, chop it up um, and uh, doesn't matter how you do it, just to make sure it doesn't go back in the water alive. All right. How about the fish itself? Is the meat safe to eat if we catch one that uh, has a sea lamprey connected? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely safe to eat. Um, you know, people prefer to, uh, you know, cut around the scar so you don't necessarily see that on a, a fillet that you're um, whipping up. But yeah, it is totally safe to eat. Ross, what do you see as kind of the future of the sea lamprey in the Great Lakes and, and how we'll deal with it? What do you see going into the future? Uh, so I, I, as I mentioned, I think it's hard to say, but uh, as I mentioned, we're investing substantial amounts of money into alternative sea lamprey controls. So those pheromones are, um, I think, definitely something that it um could prove to be very effective. So sea lampreys are uh, primarily smelling organisms. So their nasal organ um, is uh, magnitudes of times larger than their brain. So they make a significant amount of their decisions uh, using um, their nasal organ and smells. And so if we can really exploit that, I, I could see that as being um, a key element of uh, really reducing their populations. Uh, we're also looking at uh, applying uh, alternative control methods in specific situations. So for example, um, what we call our sterilized male program. So as I mentioned, sea lampreys uh, will spawn and die. And so with the sterile male program, what we do is we will catch those sea lampreys, uh, catch male sea lampreys in traps, uh, take them out to our lab and sterilize them. 
and then put them back in the rivers to go and spawn with female sea lamprey. So both of the sea, both of the sea lampreys will spawn uh, and die, but they won't actually produce any uh, fertile offspring. So that's one thing we're looking at. Um, other control methods that uh, have been investigated and are, are being investigated is uh, trapping the juveniles that are going out into the lakes. Um, so seeing if we can get them uh, after they emerge uh, from their larval stage and um, going and swimming out into the lakes. Um, and I, I, there are other uh, more far-fetched um, control methods that people have discussed. So for example, um, like what if we did uh, genetic controls? So what if we went and um, did something with the sea lamprey's DNA uh, and did something where that uh, through the um, genetics and you know, if we implanted this gene uh, that then got passed down into um, future populations, you know, uh, could there be a way that we could do that and uh, have the sea lampreys uh, themselves drive themselves into extinction? Um, so they, the, the options are really uh, wide across the board, but I'd say the, the pheromones and um, the sterile program are, are two that particularly come to mind that um, a substantial amount of research is going into and are, are proving um, feasible, at least at the moment. Uh, of course, this is still in the research phase. So even though it is uh, looks good in, uh, in an experiment that's um, more or less a controlled setting, you know, you're not necessarily going to see uh, as much success or might not necessarily see as much success uh, as you would out in the real world uh, compared to what you might find in a uh, in an experiment. So it, it very well could be that we find something, uh, say, for example, the sterilized male where, you know, it works great um, in this controlled setting. But, you know, once it is put on a wider scale, um, it, it might not be feasible. It might not work as well. Um, so that that will be um, something to keep an eye on. But uh, but yeah, it, it'll be a very interesting. And I think uh, one other thing we've uh, what we'll one other thing that we've discussed is, um, you know, thinking about, well, will we ever completely eliminate sea lampreys from the Great Lakes? And uh, at least given our current control methods, it's hard to say that we ever will. Uh, I mean, right now, we uh, view sea lamprey control as more of managing the population to help promote a healthy and sustainable Great Lakes fishery, which, as I mentioned, is valued at over $7 billion. So we are successfully doing Um but because the, the Great Lakes are uh, so large, there are so many uh, sea lamprey um, producing tributaries uh, because uh, the sea lampreys are so pervasive when they go to spawn. Uh, so when a female sea lamprey goes to spawn, she'll produce up to 100,000 eggs. So uh, just a, a brand new spawning population can easily be established by uh, just a, a pair of sea lampreys. Um, so primarily due to their life history and, and due to the, the size of the Great Lakes Basin, um, given our current control methods, it's hard to see that we would actually completely eliminate them from the Great Lakes. Uh, but as I mentioned, the, the management of it is um, going extremely well and uh, we're helping to promote a, a healthy and sustainable Great Lakes fishery. Ross, it's great having you on. Uh, really fascinating uh, things that we were talking about today, and the audience was certainly very interested in what we were talking about. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about today that I didn't ask you? Um, I, I'd say what, one cool thing that uh, I, I think is super neat, and primarily because uh, this is the work that I did before I uh, came on, is the uh, or before I came into my current position as a communications associate, uh, I worked with a... Um, a former colleague of mine who 
went and uh, did what we called uh, a big oral history project. So essentially what he did is it, this was a multi-year project where he went around and interviewed um, anybody that had any experience with the sea lamprey story. So uh, people that were in those coastal communities, commercial fishermen uh, and fishing families, uh, people in the early days of the Fish and Wildlife Service and Fisheries and Oceans and the Control Program. Uh, so what he did is he went around and essentially tried to get firsthand stories of uh, from all these different stakeholders uh, of the sea lamprey story. And um, he eventually went on to go and uh, write a, a book. So um, his name is Dr. Corey Brandt. And so he wrote this book, uh, Great Lakes Sea Lamprey, uh, The 70 Year War on a Biological Invader. And so that that was just a super, super interesting book. And and one anecdote I like to talk about is uh, how they discovered this TFM or lamprocide. And so uh, back in the day, you know, uh, as I mentioned, once the sea lampreys invaded, people were extremely desperate to, to find and control mo- control method, you know, um, fishing was an, an extremely important economic source of income for uh, many people in the region. And so people were desperate to find a control method. And so what they were doing to uh, help uh, address and, and find a control method is they uh, there was a research station uh, that actually still exists today up in uh, Millersburg, Michigan, um, just southeast of the bridge, um, a little bit south of Sheboygan, Michigan. And so at this research station, they were working uh, day in and day out. And essentially what they were doing is uh, they were looking for uh, this chemical, they, uh, the selective chemical that would uh, target and kill lampreys. And so what they would do is they would set up what we call bioassays. And so they would take a jar, fill it up with water, and then put in uh, two native species. So they put in a bluegill and uh, I believe some sort of trout species, as well as a sea lamprey larvae. So they put those three in there, and then essentially they would they put out a call to uh, any and every company, so um, chemical companies, uh, in, anybody that was making any sort of chemical, they put a call out and just said, please send us a chemical. We, we are trying to find um, a selective toxicant. And so it, it wasn't, they would, um, you know, do these chemicals. They, they wouldn't even know what was in them. Um, you know, there's uh, stories, one of, uh, one of the oral history uh, interviews that, um, my former colleague Corey conducted was with uh, the actual uh, chemist who weighed some of these chemicals as they came in. And so uh, one famous story he always talked about was uh, how uh, he would, there was one particular chemical where he opened it up and as soon as he opened it, it immediately evaporated. So, I mean, you had, who knows what kind of chemicals these were, but they would take these chemicals, pour a little bit into that bioassay jar and just uh, see what would happen. You know, give it 24, 48 hours, see what would happen. And it wasn't until uh, number 5,209 until they actually uh, found TFM. So uh, it, it was a really remarkable story to hear uh, in uh, Corey Brandt's book. And it, it was just super interesting to hear just how desperate and how dedicated some of these early control personnel were to uh, helping to save the Great Lakes fishery. And that's how they found uh, Formula 4092 was the 409th thing they tried. So uh We'll call this stuff Formula 5209 and uh, <laughs> call it a winner. Well, Ross, I uh, really appreciate you coming on. And if people want to know more about sea lampreys and everything else that uh, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission has got going on, you can go to their website. It's glfc.org. And uh, you've also got a Facebook page and all those other things that uh, people are looking. Uh, but we really appreciate you coming on. It was uh, fascinating talking to you and uh, definitely a, a subject that people are interested in. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was so much fun.
Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.